Lord Jesus, we thank you because you live. As we have sung, we can face tomorrow. And Lord, we can be secure today too. And Lord, we can look back on a past knowing that everything, every detail of it, Lord, you will use for your work and your purpose. We thank you, Lord Jesus, as your word declares, as you have declared, that you are the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. And because of that, Lord, our lives are in you. We live in you. We move in you. We have our very being in you. Father, we thank you. Whilst we live in this world, we are not of this world. Lord, we thank you that your life is in us. And as you are, so are we in this world. So, Lord, as we come to your word right now, Father, I pray by your spirit that something supernatural would happen in our hearts. Lord, something wonderful, as your word is spoken, as your word is delivered to your people, that it would be like seed in the soil of our hearts. That as it goes into our hearts, that it would produce a wonderful harvest. 30, 60, even a hundredfold after what has been deposited. So Lord, we open our hearts right now. Lord, that I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. That you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. In the knowledge of you. Not in the knowledge of this world. Not in the knowledge of how this world would want us to live our lives, but in the knowledge of you, how you would have us live our lives. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's give him a shout this morning. We're going to receive his word. Fantastic. You may be seated. Well, last week, we, um, we started out speaking about the rest that God wants us to enter as a result of Christ's finished work on the cross. Happy Father's Day, by the way, to every dad here this morning. What a wonderful day, and um, pray that you'd have a great day, rest of the day today with your families and with your children. It's great to be a dad. It really is. It's wonderful to celebrate it too. But right now we're looking at the rest that God wants us to enter as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross, and not only as a result of what Jesus has achieved on the cross, but as a result of what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead. Hebrews chapter 4, we looked at it a little bit. Hebrews chapter 4 is a chapter that's all about rest, rest, entering into God's rest. The writer to the, to the Hebrews talks about a rest that he wanted the people of God to enter into. He says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 2, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, the writer here is talking about people that lived a long time ago. 
the Israelites. Thousands of years before, God had a rest for the children of Israel to enter. And what the writer is saying is that many of those people did not enter that rest that God wanted them to enter because when they heard the word from God, they didn't mix it with faith. They, they heard the word from God. They heard about the rest that God wanted them to enter, but they didn't believe it. They treated the words that God was speaking to them with suspicion. They treated the words that God was speaking to them and the kindness and the compassion that he was showing them with contempt. And as a result of that, because they treated the promises of God with suspicion, well, you know, God doesn't really mean what he's, what he's saying to us. And, you know, is he really promising what he's promising? We don't really believe this. We want to go back to Egypt. When they treated the words of God like that, as a result of that, they didn't enter the wonderful place and position of rest that God had for them. When we talk about God's rest, we're talking about entering into a dimension of life that is completely supernatural. We are talking about entering into a place of life in God whereby worry can't touch you, whereby fear cannot hold you, whereby no, uh, no circumstance can captivate you. It's not that life becomes easy, but it's, it's that you become bigger than it. It's not that, you know, you don't face all the pressing hardships that come about in this world, but it, it, it's that you enter a life in Christ whereby you become a conqueror. Paul and the early church knew this. He says, we are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. That wasn't a natural strength. That wasn't a man just trying to be positive on a bad day. That was a man that knew that there was a life in God that was very different to the, the, the natural genetic life that many people were living in. He knew that he had access to a wonderful life in his spirit whereby he could reign in life, whereby he could look at life and all of the complexities of it and come up positive every time. This man said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. You know, he's not just trying to be positive. He's not just trying to keep everything afloat. This was a reality of life for this man. You know, sometimes when we, you know, face the hardships of life, it's easy to get knocked down. It is easy to feel life pressing down on you. It's easy to, you know, come to a, a juncture in life and not know what way to turn. And we can get worried. And we can get fatigued. And we can sometimes be overcome by the cares of life. And as a result of that, it's easy to slow down and become depressed and get low. Why? Because we're looking at life with the resources maybe that we have inside and we do a quick calculation and we think, you know what? Everybody's taking withdrawals from my account. Life is taking withdrawals from my account and there's more going out than, than, than what's coming in and I'm feeling a bit bankrupt. Have you ever been there? Everybody's putting the card in the machine and you're in withdrawal mode. 
an overdrawn mode. And you get into the point where, you know, what's going out is far, far more than what's going in. But Paul says to us, as the Word of God says to us, as Jesus says to us this morning, he wants us to enter into a dimension of life and know that there is a life available to every one of us whereby there's far, far, far more going in than, than what's going out. And you've got more. You've got more than what you'll ever need as a result of being in Christ to meet this life and to reign and to be successful in it. I remember hearing one statement, and I thought it was quite clever. I thought it's very true. And uh, Ray, it was Ray, Pastor Ray McCauley said this. He said, if your output exceeds your input, your upkeep becomes your downfall. It's very good. And sometimes all we, you know, all we see coming from our life is output, 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 work, 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 stress, stress, stress. And we go here and we go there and we get, we get beaten up here and beaten up there and we're just giving out, giving out, giving out and there's no output. And suddenly our, our whole upkeep becomes our downfall because there's no investment in. Only everybody taking out, well, I believe in this season and not only a season for the rest of our lives, I truly do believe that many of us, if not all of us, are at the greatest moment in our lives whereby God is saying, listen, there is a promise remaining. Enter into this promise. It's the promise of my rest. It's where you can be still and know that I am God. You're not God. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to get panicked about anything. I am God of your life. I am God of your daily circumstances. I am God of every trouble. We, we said it last week. David said, you're my refuge, Lord. My ever-present help in times of trouble. You don't have to face any trouble on your own. The troubles of life do not have to take the rested position that Christ has given you in himself. It doesn't, it doesn't have to threaten you. It doesn't have to take you from that wonderful place of rest in him. It really doesn't. Now, I was thinking just this morning of, a, of an amazing story, actually, in the Bible. And it's, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 6. Read it when you go home. I made this statement last week. You know, on many occasions in the Bible, when you read the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, before God did anything miraculous, before God rolled up his sleeves and got to work, the people always had to come to a place of rest. The people always had to cease from their work before God stepped forward and got into his work. You see, God wants our complete trust. God doesn't want us to try and get up and do anything. God doesn't want us working hard and trying to fix things. He's willing to step forward so that we can step backward and let him do all the work. He really is. And sometimes that can sound so wrong. That can sound so out of sync with the way that we operate because very often we think we've got to roll our sleeves up and show God what we can do. 
which is very little. But there's a, there's a story in two, chap, in, in two Kings chapter 6 that's an amazing story. And um, it's about Elisha. And, you know, he was an amazing guy. And uh, he, he had lots of friends, but he had lots of enemies too. And one day, there was this king, the king of Syria, and he was trying to um, advance in war against Israel. So he didn't like Israel, God's people. Elisha was on Israel's side. And what Elisha would do would be, he would deliver words to the king of Israel. Now, the king of Syria would plan his attack, and he would say, right, guys, we're going to go at, at this place on this particular time so that we can uh, attack Israel in surprise. What Elisha, what Elisha would do is he would get a word from God, and he would go and tell the king of Israel about the plans that the king of Syria was discussing with all of his armies. So Israel wouldn't turn up, and Syria would go to the place that they had planned, and the whole, the, the whole strategy of war would be foiled because of the word of the Lord and the servant of God. So the king of Syria gets really angry, and he goes to all of his captains and he says, listen, who's telling the king of Israel all of our plans? It's got to be one of you guys. Because I'm telling my plans to you. It's not going any further. Now, who is exposing our, our plans and our strategies against Israel to the king of Israel? Because they're not turning up where we, when we need them to turn up. And one of the servants says this. He says, it's none of us. Don't you realize it's Elisha? He can hear even the private conversations that you're having in your own bedroom right? Now, it's hard for us to understand this kind of dimension of life. It's hard for us to understand that this could be possible because it's supernatural. It's not natural. It is not normal for this kind of stuff to happen, but it actually happened. So the king of Syria gets really angry with Elisha, and he says, right, he said, find out where Elisha, where, where, he's where he's dwelling, and we'll pay him a visit. They find out he's in a place called Dotham, a city called Dotham. So the king now sends all of his armies to Dotham to capture Elisha by night. When Elisha and his servant are sleeping, fast asleep. The servant, Elisha's servant, gets up in the morning, looks out of the window, draws, draws the curtains for his master, and he sees the whole land arrayed with chariots and soldiers and horses. And they'd all come for one man, Elisha. The servant runs in and he says, My Lord, my Lord, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The whole landscape is filled with Syrian soldiers and they've come for you. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? That's what an unrested life says. That's what, a, that's what a life 
that, that doesn't know that God is orchestrating and maneuvering all things and circumstances and events says. It panics, it fears, it struggles, it doesn't see any way out other than the escape route out of the back door. What are we going to do, Elisha? The rested life says this. Number one, don't fear. What are we going to do? Don't fear, Elisha says. Now, this is a different dimension of living. This is, I mean, this is almost unbelievable that somebody, a person would act like this. Put yourself in the room with the servant and with Elisha. Would you have been shouting with the servant, what are we going to do? Or would you have been saying, don't fear? I think I would have been saying, what are we going to do? I know I would have been saying, what are we going to do? But you see, there is a dimension of life that God wants us to enter into. The place of rest, whereby you don't say, what are we going to do? But you say, don't fear. Because that rested place that the Hebrew writer talks about in Hebrews chapter 4 is a place of trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your fallen, weak, broken understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your path. Elisha knew that. Not, not by word, but by experience. He knew how to trust God. He knew how to rest in God. He wasn't troubled by the outer circumstances of a fallen world. He knew that his life was completely secure and founded and rested in God. And as a result of resting in God, he could reign in life. It didn't mean that life was easy. Oh my God, life was hard. But here's a man that was conquering life. Here's a man that was victorious over life. Here's a man that wasn't mastered by life. But here's a man that knew who God was. Fear not, he says. And then he says this. He prays. Prays. And he doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, I bind every devil in hell and all the wicked spirits. And he doesn't start sweating and anguishing on the floor like we're so used to. Praying and panicking and working. Working so hard inside to get God to listen. Listen, listen, listen. No. Doesn't even put his attention on those outer things with his prayers. He actually prays for his servant. And he says, oh God, open his eyes. Open his eyes. Let him see what I see. Let him see why I'm not troubled. Let him see why I was so still and rested last night. Let him see why I'm not anxious. Let him see. Open his eyes. Let him, let him see why I'm so still. Why I know that you're God. 
Let him see. And suddenly the Lord answered the prayer of Elisha. And the, the eyes of the servant, the veil of this natural fallen world was lifted. And the Bible says he could see the armies of God all around. Because Elisha had said, do not fear those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And I'm telling you now, you can go out into life and you can look at the circumstances, you can look at the ploys of of life as they come to you and as they try and complicate your, your walk with God. You can look at every eventuality and everything in the future and everything in your present and say, those who are for us, are far more than those who are against us. And as Paul said in Romans 8, what should we say to these things? He put it in another way. If God is for us, who, who can be against us? You see, a rested life is a life that has come to the place of appreciation, has come to the place where it realizes that it's completely and utterly secure in God. In God. And it looks out from that security and will not bow down to fear, will not bow down to depression, will not bow down to the hardships and the difficulties that life wants to bring it under. Before God does any kind of miracle, Before God intervenes, he requires that we be still. He requires that we come to that place of rest. He requires it. He requires it. Because that place of rest is a place where we reign. That place of rest is where we cease from our work and we allow God to do his work. It's interesting in John chapter 6, Jesus is there and there's multitudes of people around him. And he says to his disciples, this crowd's been with me for three days. They're weakening, they're languishing. They need some food, boys. Feed them. So immediately, these disciples, they are really worrying. A year's wages. You see, they're calculating, they're working it out. It's all a message of works. That's what you're seeing and that's what we do. And that's why we relate to it so easily. We interpret the word of God and we filter it down. And instead of applying faith in God to do it, we put our works and our efforts and we take hold of it by work and by effort. And we try to work it out through that means. And they say a year's worth of wages wouldn't feed all these people. And there's no shops around here, Jesus. And then a little lad brings his lunch. You know the story well. And he hands it to one of the disciples. And the disciples bring it to Jesus. And he says, look, we've got this lad's lunch. A few loaves and a couple of little fish. But what good? What good is this amongst so many? What good is this? Now, before Jesus does the miracle, it's interesting to see what he said to his disciples and what he got them to do amongst the crowd that were about to receive the miracle. 
he said this, get everybody to sit down. Just get everybody to sit down. Nobody's standing. Sit them down. You see, sitting down is a place of rest. It's a place where you are resting your posture. Now, there was, I'm sure, many reasons why Jesus got them to sit down. Maybe it was because, you know, as they distributed the bread and the fish and the miracle began to operate, it would be less confusing and everything would be organized. But I believe that there's a deeper message right there in John 6 where Jesus got all of that multitude to sit down. He got them in a place of rest, a rested position. And then he took what was given to him, and he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it, and over 5,000 people were fed. Before God does anything of a miraculous nature, he gets us into a place of rest, where we cease from our work, and he enters into his work. It's all over the Bible. In in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for the church. And he says, I pray, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be opened. That God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Paul, like Elisha, was saying, I want you to see what has been provided for you. I don't want you to live and go through life worried and fevered by anxiety and fevered by your own work and your own effort. I want you to understand. I want you to get this. I want you to know what God has done in Christ Jesus when he worked through his mighty power in raising him from the dead. Paul wrote to the church and the burden of of his heart, the burning desire within him was to get everybody to understand that they could enter and they were in a place of rest with God. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 10. It says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul begins by describing this amazing love that came into our lives. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't do anything about the condition of our lives. And yet God in Christ comes into that darkest, lowest, poorest moment of our lives. And it says he raises us up. He doesn't, though, raise us up to work. He doesn't raise us up to strive. He doesn't raise us up to be anxious or to be worried. He raises us up to rest. Because he raises us up 
not to be below Christ, but to be with Christ, to be seated, to be seated in heavenly places. Now, it's nice to see everybody sat down today. Your whole weight is being supported by the chair that you're sitting on. You're resting. You're in a resting posture because of the, because of the fact that the chair that you're sitting on is supporting your life's weight. It's great. The moment you stand up, your body begins to work. It begins to work automatically. Your muscles go, go to work. And if you stand up long enough, you begin to feel unrested. You begin to feel the weight of your own body. But God says, when he raised us up in Christ, he did not raise us up to work. He raised us up to rest in him so that his life is our life, so that none of our effort or none of our work will accomplish anything because his work is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, did he not say, it is finished. It is finished. My work is complete. There is no more work to be done. It's finished. The price has been paid in full. The debt has been cancelled. And as a result of me dying on the cross, God now is going to raise me up. And not only am I going to be seated, but as a result of all of the work that I've done, you're going to be seated too. Paul wanted the church to understand that they had been seated in Christ Jesus. Yes, he was talking about an invisible world that's very difficult for us to understand sometime. Yes, he was talking about a world that's very different, a realm that's very different from the world that we live in. But what he was saying was that we have a rested position in Christ. By grace we have been saved. It's not as a result of our works lest any man should boast. It's a result of the work of one man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Come on. Woo! Let me just throw this in quickly. You see, rest is all over the Bible. It's in your Old Testament. It's in your New Testament. And when you come to that rested place, it's amazing what God will do. Acts chapter 2, Jesus had told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit was going to come and energize them and give them a life that he had provided for them. So they go to Jerusalem and they go into an upper room and it says that they they were praying but they were in one place with one accord. And it says this, Acts chapter 2, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Where they were sitting, not where they were planning, not where they were strategizing, not where they were feverishly working. Where they were sitting, 
They'd come to a place of rest in God in that upper room. They'd worked out all of their differences and all of, all of the things that could have divided them. And they sat there in one place, in one accord, sitting together at a place of rest. And suddenly the power of God comes. The miracle working power of God's fire comes through the Holy Ghost. And suddenly the whole world's about to get changed as a result of what happened in that upper room. They were sitting in the upper room. And God came as we rest, as we trust, as we look to him and not to ourselves. You will be amazed at what God will do. I will be amazed at what God will do for us as we will be still and know that he is God and cease from our work. We will see him do his work. We really will. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians church. Historians tell us in AD 60. And it was an amazing church. It was a large church, the church of Ephesus. It was an incredible church and it affected the whole of Asia. Thousands of people were in this church. And Paul wanted them to understand as a result of God's work, God's work in Christ. He goes through that in Ephesians chapter 1. God's work in Christ as a result of God's work, not our work. As a result of God's work in Christ Jesus, we can rest, we can reign, we can be seated in heavenly places. He mentions that in Ephesians 2. It was of paramount importance that that the church understand that God had brought them into a place of rest. Because from that place of rest, they would reign in life, they would conquer, and they would do everything that he had destined them to do. But now, move on into the future, 30 years down the road, and look at the church at Ephesus. John, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, gets a message from Jesus to write letters to the churches. And one of the churches that he has to appeal to, one of the churches that he has to write to, is the church at Ephesus. It's 30 years on now, AD 90, since Paul had founded the church. And 30 years on, you would have thought that the church would have progressed. 30 years on, you would have thought that the church would have been reigning more then than ever. You would have have thought that they would have been enjoying God's rest and God's favor for their lives because they would have progressed with time. But John, sadly, has to appeal to this church and address some real issues that are happening with them. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 4 says this, To the angel, this is Jesus speaking to this church that Paul had founded 30 years before, AD 60. John's now writing to them and appealing to them in AD 90. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These words, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. So there's a whole catalog that Jesus is commending them for. There's a whole catalog of things that are good that this church have gained over 30 years. But Jesus comes to them and he appeals to them and he says, listen, I've got this against you. Now, Jesus isn't slapping them up the head. But I tell you something now, love does get right to the heart of the issue. And sometimes his love has to appeal to our hearts. His love has to correct us and rebuke us. He says, I've got this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had first. You've forsaken your first love. You've forsaken, church at Ephesus, the wonderful intimacy that we had together in heavenly places. You've left your seat of rest, church at Ephesus, because John says this, Verse 5, consider how far you've fallen. In other translations, it says, remember from where you've fallen. 30 years before, Paul comes with a burning revelation to the church and he shows them the height to which God had taken them. He, he, showed, them from, he showed them the depths that God had redeemed them from. God came into the lowest moment and he made it the highest moment as he seated them in Christ. He says, that's where you're seated. That's where you can reign from. That's where your rest is. You're seated in Christ Jesus. 30 years later, John comes to them and he says, think, consider, remember church from where you've fallen. I can see you're working hard. I can see you're persevering. I can see that you, you don't toler tolerate wicked people, that you're very moral. You've got all that going on, but you've lost your place of rest. Look. Consider. Remember the position from which you've fallen. Enter again the rest, the seat that you've been given. Amazing. They were working hard. But it's not good enough to work hard. They'd lost their first love. They had all of these things that were commendable among them. But that's just not good enough. And Jesus comes to them and implores them to return to their first love, their union with him, and enter that place of rest. Philippians 1, I'm going to ask the musicians to come. We're going to close in just a moment. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul, Paul's whole confidence for his life and for the lives of his friends around him was not in himself, but it was in God. He said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day 
of Jesus Christ. Many of us today, I believe, are at a moment in our lives, we're at a time in our lives, where the Holy Spirit is going to help us to enter into the rest that He's provided for us in Christ. It's not going to come as a result of listening to my sermon. It doesn't matter whether I've preached well today or not. It doesn't matter if I've stumbled and struggled to explain something that's wonderfully supernatural or not. I'm but a signpost today. I am but a messenger today. That's all I am. I'm a signpost saying, keep heading this way. Keep striving. Keep striving to enter into the rest. There is a promise, church, that remains. There is a promise that's outstanding. It's over your head. It's ready for you any time that you want to take it up and get serious with it. It's ready. The moment that you, by faith, say, that is mine, I'm going to enter it, I'm going to enjoy it, I'm going to cease from my works, I'm going to cease from my worry, I'm going to enter that rest. The moment that we do that, suddenly we will find ourselves in a whole new plane a whole new plane of life. Heard a story once about a missionary, I think it was Hudson Taylor, who was an amazing missionary across Africa. And um, me and Mark were talking about this yesterday. And for many years as a missionary, he struggled. He served God, worked hard, went to many distant lands and told people about Jesus. But inside, he struggled. Inside, there wasn't any kind of consistency. Have you found that sometimes? One day can be good. The other day can be bad. Oh, one day you can be on top of the mountain. The next day you can be down in the valley. Oh, man, life's inconsistent. It's hard. It's so variable. There seems to be no level plane where you're reigning in life. Where you're seated and rested. And Hudson Taylor knew about this inconsistency inside. He was working for God. He loved Jesus. But he hadn't entered the rest. And then one day, the Holy Spirit. You see, these things do not come as a result of a good-looking preacher preaching to you. No way, man. I wish I could give you it. I wish I could give myself to it. Give myself it. It comes as a result of the Word of God coming and the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart and say, come this way. Come this way. Come this way. I'm opening the door. Come over into a new plane of life. Come over into a new reign of life. Come over. Step over. It's supernatural. And that's why it's hard to explain it. It's hard. We look through a glass dimly, Paul said. We're looking to another life. We're looking and straining to see what it's like. And there's so many distortions because we're looking through natural reason. 
a natural life. Trying to see like that servant in the Old Testament saw. We're trying to see and strain and peer beyond. But then suddenly God can bring you in and he took Hudson Taylor in. And he said this. What do you say now? Hudson, are you about? <laughs> He's long gone. We wouldn't want him to appear here. I tell you, it wouldn't be right. I'd rebuke him and tell him to get out. He said, Jesus said to him, he said, the water, this is all he said, the water that I give to you, that I give you access to, that you can drink from, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And he reminded him of the story about when he met the woman at the well. And suddenly Hudson said, my thirst was quenched. And all of my inconsistencies left me. And my life from that moment on wasn't an up and down experience. Wasn't a happy, sad experience. It was a consistent, rested, reigning experience in Christ Jesus. And he said that after after 40 years of ministry. Right now, the Holy Spirit, in different ways across this place, is going to take, I'm telling you now, is going to take you in. Not because of what I've said. I'm telling you, I'm just the signpost on the road. Rest that way. That's all I am. But he is going to take you in. You go home. You just open yourself. Maybe sit down and say, Lord, this rest that I'm hearing about, this rested place of life that you have for me, I believe, I trust, I put my faith in that promise. Let me enter. And I'm telling you now, as a result of your faith in his word, something wonderful it's going to happen. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Close our eyes. You may be here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You've never asked Jesus into your heart. Do you know, He wants to come into your heart. I want to give you an opportunity right now. I want to pray with you. If you would like me to pray with you, I'd love to do that. Quickly lift your hand up. I'll see it. Then you can put it down and then we're going to pray a a prayer together. You can say it quietly in your heart. Give you a few moments to do that. Jesus will give you the peace that you're searching for. Is there one person here this morning? We're going to pray. If not, let's stand to our feet, church.